Good morning, everyone. I thought that that communion was lovely, and I think that it pairs really well with the sermon. As we come to a close on the season of Advent, we have one more Advent that we're still awaiting. It's when Jesus came, so when, pardon me, when Jesus came the first time, we celebrated Christmas. We rejoiced that the Savior of the world came, he freed us from our sins, and he ascended into heaven. But scripture doesn't end when Jesus ascended. We're given a promise that Jesus is coming back, which we call the second advent, the return of Christ. And scripture is filled with anticipation of Jesus' return. There have been pages and pages of ink spilled on when he's coming back and how he's going to return. But, and Revelation is a big focus of that text, but there are other scriptures that point to this too. And one such text is from the Old Testament. It's in the book of Malachi. So join me in Malachi chapter 3 as we read a text that talks about both the first and the second coming. Again, Malachi 3, it's on page 802 if you're using one of the Bibles in the seats. And before we read the text, we'll start with prayer. So join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we're coming to a close on this year, we anticipate the new year to come. In your word, we also know that there are future promises that await, and we ask that as we read this text, we would get a sense of excitement and delight for your son's second coming. We ask that the Holy Spirit transform us to live faithful lives here as we prepare for Christ's return. And as we read this text, give us the conviction to obey your commands and to serve you as you rightly deserve. Transform us as we read the text so that we may be obedient to you and that we would obey all the things that you have commanded and that we would do these things with pleasure. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you weren't here with us for the last couple sermons that I have preached through Malachi, here's an overview of the book so far. God has declared love for his people, but they didn't believe that. The Israelites would complain that God doesn't love them, but God constantly shows and displays that he does love them. He deeply loves them, and then he shows that instead they have continuously proven that they don't love him. They don't respect him. They don't honor him. They don't give glory to his name. In fact, they profane the altar where they are supposed to make sacrifices and sacrifice their leftovers or their blemished and um, unpure sacrifices. They gave him what they didn't want, even though he deserved the best of the best. So God tells them that he would rather they not sacrifice at all than do what they're doing. The next, the nation continues in their unfaithfulness. We see that the priests have no regard for God, and in turn, because they don't listen to God, the people also don't listen to God. So the nation falls into sinfulness, and this is displayed in their unfaithfulness in marriages. The people have lost their love for God, which leads to these broken marriages, and it leads to God again saying that he would rather them not sacrifice at all. He doesn't want their offerings. They have dishonored God again. But God is gracious, and the promise of Malachi 3 gives great hope to those who love him, and that's where we start our text here in Malachi 3. 
is what it says. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the day of old and in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widows, and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourners and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 1 has a lot to unpack here. There are three people that are mentioned in this text. The first person is the one saying, I'm about to send my messenger. And that one is identified at the end of verse 1. It's the Lord of hosts. Or sorry, um, oh yeah, it is, right, the Lord of hosts, I got it right. <laughs> um, God, is, God the Father is the person here in this text. And that should be easy enough to follow. The second one is a little bit more difficult. It's the one that's my messenger right here. Behold, I send my messenger. And it almost certainly refers to John the Baptist. And the reason we believe this is because the messenger here in Malachi 3.1 is connected with the messenger uh, that, that appears later on in chapter 4, verse 4, uh, 5. Uh, it says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The day of the Lord in Malachi 4 is the day where the Lord comes to his temple and the events that we see in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 3 that we just read uh, happens. This means that the messenger of 3.1 is the same messenger as the one of 4 verse 5, Elijah. But I just said that it was John the Baptist. So what gives? Why would I say that it's John the Baptist? I say that because Jesus' words in Matthew 11, verses 11 through 14, which reads, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Jesus is pretty clear that John is Elijah. John's a prophet. We see that the text says that the prophets and the law prophesied until John. John comes in the spiritual succession of Elijah. The other significant passage about John being Elijah, or the Elijah figure, is at his birth. An angel comes to John's father, Zechariah, in Luke 1, verses 13 through 17, and this is what it says. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. 
and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord our God, the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John the Baptist has been identified as Elijah. He's not literally the reincarnation of Elijah. He says so himself in John 1 verse 21, but he has come as a messenger who prepares a path for the Lord. Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And Luke in his book, Luke chapter 3, says that John was the fulfillment of that passage in Isaiah the messenger of Malachi 3 and 4. So this leaves one person. We have God the Father. We have John the Baptist as the Elijah figure. And the third one is the messenger of the covenant. Again, chapter 1 says, And the Lord, oh, uh, and behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The text that has uh, this is paralleled with the Lord who's coming to his temple. Noting his temple is significant. That means that the Lord who is the messenger of this covenant is also divine. He shares in uh, the, the essence where he has the temple for himself. The messenger of this covenant then must be the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one who makes this covenant with us when he institutes the Last Supper, where he makes a covenant in his blood. But before that, we see a glimpse of how Jesus is the messenger of the covenant who is coming to his temple. We see that in Matthew chapter 21. In Matthew 21, Jesus comes to a temple, and he, or he comes to the temple, and he sees that there's something less than holy taking place. He sees that there's robbery happening in the temple. Here's what the text says. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. The temple is a place for the people to worship God, but instead he finds evil happening. The very place where people were to honor God is now the place where corrupt men have set up shop and they've profaned the temple. They're salesmen who have taken advantage of God and his people. They would go to the temple and sell animals that were meant to be sacrificed and they would prey on those who did not have a sacrifice and they would make great profits off of them, like scalping uh, scalping ticket sales today. They're cheating the people of God in God's house. So Jesus, filled with the Spirit and filled with righteous anger, declares, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And then he promptly kicks them out. He cleanses the temple so that God would not be mocked anymore. He's quoting both from Isaiah and Jeremiah, both prophecies from God. He's speaking on God's behalf. And notice he says, my house. It's his temple, as we see in Malachi 3. These money changers are robbing God, and God is not going to stand for that. So Jesus, as the messenger of the covenant, comes to make things right. He drives them off. He purifies the holy place to be a place of worship 
again. So what does this messenger of the covenant do? What does Jesus do? He does two major things, and here's the first one. Jesus comes to refine and purify his people. God is a gracious God and a loving God, but he's not a God who sits back idly and just lets people get away with whatever they want. God has promised us that he will grow us and he will sanctify us and he's going to make us more holy. But growing in holiness is not always a painless process. In fact, we know it's often quite painful. But he lets us endure that pain for our good. Jesus comes to refine and purify his people. Read again verses 2 through 4 of Malachi 3. It says, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. I have a question for you. Have any of you ever been sprayed by a skunk? If you or someone that you know has been, then you know how incredibly awful it can be. That sulfuric stench, it's overwhelming, and it smells like rotten eggs or like expired milk or like rancid meat. It's this terrible feeling. People take extreme measures to do whatever they can to remove that smell. There's uh, people who have bathed in tomato juice or in oatmeal, um, both famous myths that apparently don't work. Uh, there's also hot showers where you would just wash yourself as many times as you can. Uh, and, and, and one of the more effective ones is covering yourself in baking soda to, to kind of neutralize the, the stench. But whatever you can do to get that smell, that's what people do. They take extreme measures. Anything that they can do to just get that smell to stop. And we see that God is going to cleanse his people with extreme measures like this. The people have been sprayed with their own wickedness, and other prophets have had similar messages to foreign nations. God, for example, tells Jonah to preach condemnation to the Ninevites because their evil has arisen before them. The stench of their wickedness is overwhelming. But here in Malachi, it's God's chosen people. Not the wicked nations around them, not this time. God has promised that it would happen to Israel too. If you read the book of Amos, you can see how that plays out. Other nations will be judged, but eventually so too is Israel. They're chosen by God, but not because they're better. They're chosen because he loves them, as we learned in chapter 1 of this text, of Malachi. In our text here in Malachi 3, he uses the imagery of refiner's fire and fuller's soap. Our finest fire is extremely hot and it burns away impurities and melts the metal so that it would make it more pure. It isn't like a campfire that you sit around to have a good time. It's refining. It's concentrated. It's a deeply intense flame. It melts away the metal and it burns away all the impurities so that the gold and silver may be pure. And fuller soap is kind of similar. A fuller was a professional who would clean fabrics and would often dye materials the fabric had to go through a deep cleansing process. It's probably one of the most intense processes I've heard about when I've read about cleaning. They would saturate the clothes in soap 
uh, pure lie. They would scrub away as hard as they can. They would trample on the material. They would soak the fabric, and they would do it again and again, repeating it, repeating it until all impurities were removed and the garment would be white as snow. Both pictures show this process of purification was not a light process. There's this intensity in this cleaning process. God takes purity and he takes holiness seriously. And Jesus is the one who takes God's people and cleanses them. He does this through his shed blood, which justifies us. He declares that we are pure and spotless before God. And he, with the Holy Spirit, continues his work in us by sanctifying us, by making us holy and pure that we would be refined like gold or freshly laundered garments. And as we live our lives, we see that God is working out our holiness so that we would be more and more like Jesus. We're in a process, but it's a process with a perfect end result. And I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of hope as someone who knows he's not perfect. And in my sufferings and in your sufferings, we are being purified. We're being perfected. We see that Jesus comes to purify and refine his people, but we also see a second point that's embedded within that. We see that Jesus also comes to destroy the ungodly. This process of purifying both through a refiner's fire and through laundering clothes as white as snow means that the dirt is either burnt up or it's washed away. God tells us that the people um, are not going to get away with the impure actions that they've been taken. Their wickedness will not stand. God comes to destroy the ungodly. And that's an uncomfortable point, but look at what our text says. Verse 5 says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widows and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourners and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. God takes those whom he loves and he purifies them, but for these wicked people, those who do not fear God, those who do not keep his commandments, he stands as a prosecutor against them. And he testifies that they are guilty. They're not going to stand. Their evil deeds are seen, and they're exposed, and they're judged. It's unambiguous. Sorcerers, adultery, liars, cheats, they are all in for a bad time. God says to them, you are guilty. And they won't be able to say, you didn't warn us about this, when they're condemned and they're judged for their evil deeds. He has laid it out with clarity And there is no escape for those who have heard this. And he said that he is not going to change his mind. The text makes that clear when we get to the next verse. Verse 6 of Malachi 3 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God's not going to ignore his promises that he has made, nor is he going to ignore the judgments that he has promised either. He is consistent, and this means we know exactly what he's going to do. One of my favorite ways that I've heard theologians talk about this is that God is gloriously flat, flat like how a heart rate monitor, when the patient is dead, there's no fluctuation, there's no jumps, there's nothing. 
just a straight line. There's no surprise. There's no change in the readings. What he was is what he is and what he always will be. He is, as Hebrews 13 verse 8 says, the same yesterday and today and forever. God's not changing and his not changing is a grace to his people. The text says that it's good for the people of Jacob for they're not consumed. We see that that shows he is faithful to his covenant. Even though they've been bad towards God, God has upheld himself. God is good to them even when they're not good to him. His covenant was a promise that he would take the people who deserve destruction and he would give them grace. Not because of anything they did. It was an act of pure kindness towards them. He chose them as we read in Malachi 1. He says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. The same God that has come to refine and purify Jacob is the same one that comes to destroy Esau. Not because God is wicked, but but the opposite is because he's gracious, and he's always been gracious. They both deserve destruction, but God, out of an undeserved kindness, gives grace to the undeserving. Like Jacob, and like me, and like you, if you believe. This was the promise that he has made, and it's the promise that he continues to keep. This promise is for you. This promise is for your children. This promise is for your neighbors. And this promise is for the distant corners of the earth. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And there's no need to ask, does God love me like he loves Jacob? Does God hate me like he hates Esau? Malachi shows that God is the same unchanging God that he always has been. With that promise of the gospel that all who believe share that same faith that Jacob was promised. God loves you, Christians. He really, really loves you. Jesus sacrificed himself and he hung on a cross to show you his love. So trust that promise. And to those of you who still don't know what you believe or where you stand with God, this can be for you too. God has made this promise for you. Call upon the name of Jesus. Pray for your sins to be taken away and to put on Christ who suffered that punishment of sin. Trust that he also died for you. That's why we're always so filled with joy at Christmas. We're remembering that promise that was fulfilled in Jesus' first coming, his first advent. Verses 7 through 15, continuing on, says, From the days of your father you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. 
But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What's the profit of keeping this charger walking in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Often when this text is preached on, people assume that the sermon is going to focus on giving money to the church. And that is a reasonable assumption. The text is pretty clear that the people have not been giving money as they are required. In fact, they haven't given God much of anything. They aren't obedient in any areas of life. They've robbed God of faithful marriages. They've robbed God of the altar. They've robbed God of faithful services. They've withheld honor from him. They've withheld fear from him. And now they're withholding their money. They're taking what he has owed that way as well. They give him grief. Not really what you want to be given, They give him violence, but he wants faithfulness. There is a legal obligation for them here in Malachi to give the tithe or the tax to the temple. They owed two tithes every year and a third tithe every three years, which ends up being something like 23 and a third percent or so um, if you average out how many taxes they have. And that didn't include any of the additional offerings or sacrifices that they would give uh, freely. Those were all requirements that were agreed upon as a nation of Israel with God. But the Israelites did not uphold their obligations as a nation. They pledged to give, but then they didn't make good on their promises. This is a reminder to us that when we make pledges or promises, we're responsible to uphold our promises. God doesn't break his promises and we're not, uh, and he's not breaking his promises still. So we should not break our promises. Let your yes be yes, and let your no be no, and give what you owe, because God loves a generous giver. God even promises that he will be generous with those who are generous, and that he even backs it up by saying, test me. Go ahead, be generous, test me, and I will show you blessings come in abundance. It's one of the very few times in Scripture where God tells his people to put him to the test, He's telling you to bless or to test him when he has promised blessings so that you would be blessed. He'll show you what he is capable of and he'll send so many blessings that they'll overflow. The principle that we have been given in scripture is to give as has been set in our hearts with generosity, with cheerfulness, and without reluctance. Those who give little will receive little and those who give much will receive much. So if you're committed to giving to the church or a ministry, or whatever you've set in your heart to give to God, don't hold back. Returning to our first point, Jesus refines and purifies his people, and this includes how we handle our possessions. Commitments are commitments. Give what you're committed to give and trust that God will take care of you better than you can take care of you. Our world has enough problems for us to be worried about, so trust that Jesus, or press that trust that God will provide for you as he has promised that he would. He promises that if you give, he would give back. And it may be hard to trust that. It may be hard to see that, but he has been faithful to that promise so far, and he is not abandoning us. So you can trust that when God says that he will give to you, that you will receive exactly what he has for you. 
and he continues to refine us and purify us through that as well. And if you remember our second point, Jesus comes to destroy the ungodly, then we see people like Ananias and Sapphira who learned this the hard way. They committed to give all the money from their land to the church, but then they only gave a fraction. It cost them their lives. They could have only given a portion. They could have promised to only give a certain amount. But they promised to give everything, and then they lied. They tried to deceive God, but he knew, and God knows you. So what you do with your money often reflects what you value. What do you value with your money? How do you value God with your money? T.V. Moore has an excellent little illustration. He says, We may try to defraud God, but in the end we'll only defraud ourselves. The eagle who robbed the altar set fire to her nest from the burning coal and adhered to the stolen flesh. So men who retain God's money in their treasuries will find it a losing possession. Those who give to God receive God's generosity, and those who withhold what God first gives them gains nothing and even suffer loss. So consider what God has given you. It's the end of the year, so it's a perfect time to see the many blessings that he has given to those who trust his promises. Take some time to do that today. We continue in verse 16. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before them, those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them, as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. I think this is an exciting little tidbit in the text that those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. There is community even in nations that are against God. I mean, we're an example of that in in one way. We see that there are faithful people who fear God and who desire to obey what God has commanded. And for them, there is hope in this decree. While the rest of the nation faces judgment for their wickedness, God promises them salvation from the wrath to come. And who can endure that? No one. Those who fear God, however, will be spared. So when the nation has been complaining that God doesn't remember them, that's simply not true. Those who, as verse 15 says, put God to the test in this way, where he's promised curses, they won't escape. The arrogant won't be blessed. The evildoers won't prosper. But it may look like it because the day of the Lord hasn't come yet. But that day is coming. That day is drawing near when all wickedness will be judged, and that is certain. So for all of you who have been suffering injustice, you will see God make it right. The wicked those who do not serve God. And the righteous, those covered by the blood of Christ and seek to serve him will have incredibly drastic differences. The outcomes are so stark and we can read that in chapter four. It's what chapter four says of the two. Behold, the days are coming, the day, behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. 
The day is coming and shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stalls. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. We see our two points return here. Jesus comes to refine and purify his people, and Jesus comes to destroy the ungodly. The ungodly are not going to stand in his presence. They are going to be burned up. They're going to be destroyed. Unlike the righteous who will be refined in the fire, the wicked will be no more. They're going to be completely gone. They're not going to be remembered. Their legacy will fade. But for God's people, the text ends with great hope. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise, shall rise with healing in its wings. This promised joy is for those who endure. This promised joy for those who endure the day of his coming is immense. Brothers and sisters, God is coming to heal us. Jesus will restore this broken world. He'll reverse that curse and show that he has not forgotten you. God shows us that he hasn't forgotten us already by sending Jesus to take our sins away from us. You're free. And that promise is for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. So come and be free. Experience that healing that's promised. A healing that's never going to be taken away. Let God fill you and transform you and refine you and heal you. And finally, in Malachi 4, verses 4 through 6, the end of the book, it reads this. Remember the laws, or the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The promise is given that both the one generation teaches the next, but the young generation also reminds the parents. We also see in this that that the laws that we have been given are good. So we shouldn't say, ah, who cares about the laws? They don't matter anymore. The laws matter a great deal, and God tells us to remember the laws. It's a grace for us when we follow those laws. Again, as he said, put me to the test. Follow him. He has given blessings, and he's promised that those blessings are to come. But the text returns us to where we started. The second coming is coming, and it's coming soon. So as we settle down for the season of remembering Christ's first coming, and as we look forward to the new year to come, remember that God has not forgotten us. He has not forgotten his promise. He has not forgotten his covenant. And he has not forgotten you. Consider maybe before the New Year's countdown tonight how God has refined and purified you this year and how he continues to be faithful to every promise that he makes. Let's pray. Our holy and perfect God who commands heaven's hosts of angel armies, we are beyond blessed by you. We were created by you. We're known by you. We're loved by you and we await your return. While we wait, create clean hearts within us. 
Create in us a desire to serve you with our whole hearts. Make us generous. Make us faithful. Give us confidence. Give us an awareness of our sins and lead us into paths of righteousness. May the Holy Spirit continue to sanctify us and point us to Jesus and may Jesus grow us more. May we see him as more precious and sweet and have us seek after you all the days of our lives. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.